The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. It's time for the last word on the environment and John Gibbons is with us as he is every Thursday. John, good evening to you. I was wandering down my local supermarket the other day and all of the shelves pretty much in the fruit and veg aisle were practically empty. And I've seen this in the UK in the last couple of days and I thought that was all down to Brexit over there. Why are our shelves empty? Uh, good evening, Ian. Yeah, uh, as you say, in the UK, they're they're mostly pointing fingers at at uh, Brexit-related uh, supply chain issues. But uh, the reality is is a. Uh it actually affects us all. Um, so we see, for example, that many of the imports that have been affected here, these are fruit and veg, things like uh, tomatoes, broccoli, lettuce, aubergines, cucumbers. Uh, basically, these are coming in from from specialist growers in uh, Italy, Spain and Morocco. And obviously, they're able to grow these uh, at this time of the year so that we have, if you like, year round supplies of these fruit and vegetables. And these um, these have been interrupted, I suppose, most recently because, uh, say, in the case of Spain, they experienced 16 consecutive nights of sub-zero temperatures. So what we're really seeing is, if you like, dramatic variations, extreme weather events, uh, freezes, droughts, and so on. And I guess the most important thing to understand in food production for anybody who's involved in agriculture or horticulture, uh, what the farmer's friend is predictability, and the enemy of food production is uh, basically when the weather uh, becomes completely unreliable. So we saw, for example, if you go back to 2018, probably the last major uh, drought event in Ireland, uh, what we had with there was a combination, uh, Ian, of, of a very cold spring, which suppressed uh, growth, followed by a summer drought. And as a result of that, in 2018, we had a major fodder crisis in Ireland, which were we not able to import fodder from abroad, we would have had a, a massive crisis with, our, with our, our, our livestock herd at the time. It was narrowly averted. And I guess what we're seeing right around the world is a ratcheting up of extreme weather conditions. Now, I was looking into this and, and the, the United Nations, their projection is that uh, extreme weather events uh, fueled, if you like, by climate change, are going to cut global food output by up to 30% by mid-century. That's 30%. Now, if you, if you take it that by mid-century, we're expecting about 9 billion humans to be, to be, that'll be the global population. We're looking, therefore, at the food that is currently feeding one third of that, of that population, basically not existing in 30 years' time. Now, that, by the way, Ian, of course, works on the assumption that we continue to fail to deal with climate change because essentially what is eroding our ability to produce food reliably and predictably that we depend upon is, of course, the, the breakdown of our weather systems. And that is fueled by the uncontrolled release of fossil fuels, uh, mostly carbon dioxide, also methane, year after year. Uh, and that is building up at the rate of 50 billion tonnes a year in our atmosphere. And again, this, these are these are well-known facts to anybody who follows the science. But the reality is when you add 50 billion tonnes of a, of a, of a concentrated uh, heat-trapping gas to a finite atmosphere, then only bad things happen. John, I was saying to somebody the other day, other day about this, we've become too used to having a supply of whatever we want all year round. But what I get from you is it's not just having all year round supply of fresh fruit and veg, it's that we may not even have the security of supply for food that we actually need. 
Yeah, that's right, Ian. And I think it's important to say that uh, while we generally, for example, you know, let's be parochial about it for a moment and talk about Ireland. You know, we think of Ireland, uh, if you like, as a food island, and we obviously export something like 90% of all the food produced uh, on our island is exported, but isn't really exported to hungry people. It's exported to the world's middle classes, to to the upper middle classes in China and Saudi Arabia and so on. So we're not really involved in, in, in easing world hunger with the food that we produce. And obviously, we also import millions of tons of animal feeds and fertilizers to produce all this food. But the irony of that, Ian, is that while we're a major food exporter, we're a massive food importer. In fact, 80% of all the food in your typical Irish supermarket has emanated from abroad. Now, I know uh, pineapples and uh, coffee and so on. Obviously, there are there are many items like that that can't be produced in Ireland. But there are also many that can, particularly uh, in a horticultural systems under glass, uh, as the Dutch, for example, have pioneered. So we have a situation where we're quite food insecure. And there is an irony here because uh, there's a thing called the Global Food Security Index. And this rates Ireland as the second most food secure country in the world, which would would suggest uh, that my argument there isn't correct. But when you look at the index and the, the factors that it uses to determine a country's food security, they include things like affordability, the wealth of the country, nutritional standards, and so on. In other words, they kind of really look at wealthy countries. Are you able to afford food? They don't actually really look at basic sustainability. And it's certainly a concern for people who look closely at this, that Ireland, we could relatively quickly find ourselves in a position, particularly with a disrupted uh, global food supply, which can happen for all kinds of reasons. We could find ourselves on this island with a food crisis. Now, that goes far beyond, Ian, simply uh, there being a shortage of of, uh, some fruit and vegetables in the aisles. I'm talking about actual food shortages. And of course, in our our collective history in Ireland, we have a, a very strongly ingrained relationship with food and the importance of a steady food supply. Yet, Strangely enough, despite, as I said, our huge agricultural sector, that sector is not capable of feeding the population of Ireland at the moment. And, and no, that's it's something. A, it's a that, sector, and you know this, John, it's a sector yeah, focused on exporting dairy. Very much so, very much so. And, and not just dairy, obviously, uh, uh, beef as well. And, and it's very much, and again, that has been government policy. So, I'm, so what, I'm do not, we do? Uh, what do we do to have, again, it's not about choice, it's about making sure we have enough food. Yeah, I think I think uh, we've seen this all around the world, not not just in agriculture, but in so many uh, sectors have kind of traded away resilience, if you like, in our production. In uh, and they've they've given away resilience and they've traded it for efficiency. Now that has sort of brought prices down, and we've got lots of uh, just-in-time uh, production systems. Now, just-in-time is all very well if you're ordering in a you know an iPhone from from Malaysia, right? You're doing that on a just-in-time system, so that lit that phone is literally being produced almost as your order goes in. Now, that's fine. So if you're if that just in time system breaks down and your iPhone is six weeks late, well, guess what? Nobody dies. The problem is when your food systems are based on just in time, then that's where you've got a real risk. We lack resilience. We have almost no warehousing of food in Ireland. Our horticulture sec- sector, Ian, uh, which again, horticulture per, per square meter or per acre produces far more food for human consumption than any other type of system. Yet Ireland, I think, is the, the second lowest 
lowest or the lowest uh, percentage of our entire um, agricultural land is, is used for horticulture. Now, people listen to me now will say, oh, well, that's because farmers can't get a good price. Well, then if that's the case, you need to talk to your farm leadership about this because we need to produce way more food for human consumption, not for animals, but for human consumption on this island. And our agriculture sector, which we support, it supports us, but we support it. It needs to, it's part of the deal needs to be to deliver food resilience for this island. We're only 5 million strong. We should be well able to be food, not just food independent, but to be a genuine food exporter. And so far, well, Ian, that's simply not the case. No surprise, John. People are having their views on this to 87 102 One person says scaremongering BS from John. Another says, isn't food security a good reason to grow your own at home on an allotment? And another texter says, why is Ireland not investing in vertical farming systems? I think you're... you're, you're uh contractor, your person there is absolutely right. Again, if you look at things like hydroponics, uh, again, the Dutch have been fantastic at this. They have 36 square miles of land under uh, greenhouses and they're producing tens of billions of euros worth of food. They far outproduce Ireland in terms of food for, for export. But that food that they produce is food for human consumption, not for, for, for feeding animals. Let's that's move the on. key Let, difference. Let's indeed. move on a little bit because one country yeah. is doing something about its food security and that is Japan, which which is looking at restarting some whaling. That's right. This is a, a really interesting one, Ian. Uh, it's a Japanese company and they're they're in the process of building a new whaling ship, which they, they, they rate as being designed to be able to travel all the way from Japan as far as Antarctica. And of course, this is sparking fears that we could see the resumption of whaling in the Southern Ocean. Now, Probably some of your listeners will be, will be thinking, well, hang on, wasn't commercial whaling banned? Now, technically it was. The International Whaling Commission introduced a moratorium in 1986 uh, banning uh, whaling. And that has, has led to a rebound in whale populations around the world. And this is obviously hugely to be welcomed. However, Japan uh, got a, a get out of jail, if you like, clause uh, in that, Ian, where they're allowed to hunt whales legally in the Southern Ocean uh, as long as they do it for what they call scientific research. Now, of course, scientific research is a euphemism for we just want to keep whaling because it's what we've always been doing. And the, 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 the president of the, of the whaling company, he, he had an interesting uh, comment on this. He said that we want to contribute to Japan's food security. He said, we designed the ship to be able to travel to the, to the Antarctic in the hope that it will be useful in times of food crisis. And also he wants to preserve what they call their whaling culture to the next generation. Now, I'm not really sure what a whaling culture is, but what I do know is uh, that if you eat the meat of um, creatures like whales, uh, basically the, the the blubber and so on, I mean, it's a, it's a specialty dish in, in certain countries, but it's also, it accumulates toxins because there are so many toxins in the ocean that the larger creatures uh, accumulate that in their flesh. So if you want, if you, if you're concerned about your health and your well-being, you certainly wouldn't eat whale meat. And just very briefly, and you mentioned there as well, of course, one of the reasons why we are seeing the shortage of food supply across Europe is a drought. That's right, Ian. Uh, we've got some really extraordinary drought conditions going on. France, for example, has just recorded a, its first ever 32-day period of no rainfall across the, the huge country of France for a 31-day period running up to the 21st of February, which is the longest period since, since records have begun. And we've also seen some very unusual things. For example, most people associate Venice, obviously with the canals, but also with flooding, because that's been a per perennial problem in Venice. Uh, but what we're now seeing and some fascinating Fascinating footage coming from Venice showing uh, canals actually dried out because, again, of remarkable drought. And the Po River, for example, which is uh, probably the most important uh, agricultural uh, 
aquifer, if you like, in Italy, that's been down to record levels. And we saw that right across 2022 as well. Major European rivers uh, from the from the, the Po, as I said, in Italy uh, and major rivers in Germany and in Belgium and in France, all down to the levels, for example, where the Rhine in Germany uh, was unable to navigate for large chunks of it. And the Rhine, in fact, the navigation, the barges on the Rhine are one of the main uh, channels for moving uh, produce, not just food, but other other commercial produce around and taking it to the ports in Germany. So what we're seeing, I suppose, obviously, is a ratcheting up of extreme weather, particularly of uh, intensive droughts. And we know, for example, the UK government have announced that they're one dry spell away from declaring what they call a severe drought condition for 2023. It's only February. John, I'm going to have to leave it there. John Gibbons, thank you very much for joining us. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.